All right, today's reading is from Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and authority that it holds from you. Um, I pray, Lord, that today we just hear what you have to say and what you've put into Bob's heart. Um, Lord, let him glorify you the way that he does each week and let us all just continue to keep our focus and um, our attention and our adoration on you. Your name we pray, amen. I don't need that, just leave it on the, uh, by the steps. Thanks. All right. Um, we finished up the book of John and, and a big part of the book of John was Jesus teaching his disciples how to live how to live the Christian life, how to live for God, how it actually works. And then a big part of it for us was figuring out, okay, how does that apply to us? How do we live for God? And I've been thinking about that and thinking, how does spiritual growth really happen? What's our responsibility? How do people, how do people become more like Jesus Christ? You know, what can I do not to make myself more like Christ, but what can I do to allow him to make me more like himself. Because God is the one who does the heavy lifting. He's the one that changes hearts. He's the one that convicts us of things. He's the one that shows us. Is how do I learn to put God first? Now, when I uh, was starting to hear about Jesus, I didn't, grow up, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Nobody in my family were Christians. And, um, and then when I started hearing about Jesus, one of my brothers had gotten saved in college and he had come home and he was talking to us about it. And uh, I didn't like what he had to say. And I blew him off and didn't pay much attention to it. And over the years, God started just in little ways with people started dealing with me. Now, at the time where I really started seriously thinking about it and what was involved in it and understanding what kind of decision it was, you know, I, had, I guess we all have these things. You, you have things sometimes that you get into that you're just... You're just all eaten up with it. It's just all, you're all about it. And I was into motorcycle racing. And, and I mean, I would, I would work during the week to make some money. I'd work on my, on my bikes. And then some friends sometimes would come and help me with, you know, the, as we wrenched and did all these things and, and uh, got them prepared for races. And uh, it was everything. It was everything. It just dominated my life. Nothing else was important to me. And suddenly I'm starting to think about Jesus Christ and people are talking about me about Jesus Christ. And what really showed, as I look back, what really shows me that I began to understand the message was I began to go, he wants to be number one. He wants to be number one in my life. And right now, racing is number one in my life. That's all I think about. That's why I work during the week. That's what I do in the evenings in the garage. I mean, that's everything to me. And all of a sudden, I realized I got to make a decision. Now, is motorcycle racing bad? No, it's not bad. It's stinking fun is what it really is. It's not bad. 
But I suddenly started realizing there's a war going on in my heart for who's number one. Who's going to be number one? And part of the problem, I mean, there was a number of different things. Part of the problem was races were Sunday morning. And I started seeing a conflict there if I was going to really take Jesus Christ seriously. And I just started seeing all those things. Now, um, I stopped racing after a bit. I kind of decided this isn't, it's a lot of money. And maybe I have better uses of my time and things like that. I still didn't quit riding. I still ride. Uh, If there's any police listening, I do not race. I do not race. Okay, just so you know that. Try not to speed. And uh, this past couple years, I've decided I'm going to stop doing wheelies. So I don't do wheelies anymore because I know that's against the law. And they're like, Bob, it took you 60-something years to figure that out? Yes, Yes, it did. It did. Because it's stinking fun. All right? That's all I can say. All right? So we have this sense of, in our lives, Jesus Christ wants to be number one, but there's other things that fight for that position. And, and how do we grow spiritually? Because some parts of the Christian life, growth comes only in solitude. Be still and know that I'm God. And, and, uh, and, and that's oftentimes how we meet God so many times. For me, it was in solitude, alone, in my bed, late one night, going, is this all there is? Because if this all there is, life sucks, man. I need, I need something. And I knew, I knew it was God. And so sometimes, you know, it's alone. Uh, every once in a while, I'll take a walk, walk out of here, walk around the neighborhood. Uh, Port Warwick's a beautiful neighborhood, you know, with, with uh, art and, 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 you know, all this just beautiful stuff. And walk and pray and talk to God. Uh, the, the other day I did that. And all of a sudden, I'm just walking along. I'm going, man, it's a beautiful day. It's great to be alive. God, thank you for this gift. Thank you that you love me. Thank, and it just became this worship time, just alone. Sometimes, though, there needs to be other people. It needs to be more relational. Maybe it's just one-on-one with somebody. Maybe it's in a small group where fellowship really happens. Maybe it's, you know, establishing a relationship with some people that you know, and they know you, and they love you, and they pray for you in spite of how lame you are. They still stick with you. And this is what happens when we open up and we expose ourselves, accountability happens and people love and sometimes people you know, get in your face and, and talk to you and it happens to all of us. I have some people that I'm accountable to that will get in my face because they love me. This is important. And then some spiritual practices take place in a large setting like this. This is what we would call corporate worship and, and, and teaching, corporate teaching and learning. All right, this, this is commanded by God that we are to meet together on certain times. We're just to meet together. He says that in, in, in Hebrews. And there's something about this that makes it powerful. Every one of them, all alone with God, with, a, with someone else or a small group with God, in the large, they all have pluses and minuses, but each one, there's a power there that is, that is very personal and very important for us. And then we just learn in the course of our lives. I call that job discipleship. How would Jesus do my job if he was in my place? How, would I, how can I run my business in a way that honors God? What kind of student would Jesus have been? Or in your neighborhood, what kind of neighbor would Jesus have been? And then we start finding ways we can serve, finding ways we can uh, affect other people's lives, maybe just by praying for them. 
and praying for those that are struggling. It just really hit me. Last week, I did, a, I did a talk about being in the wilderness. And I was amazed at how many people came up to me afterwards and have called me during this week and said, Bob, I'm in the wilderness. I'm in the wilderness. And I, and I would encourage you. You know, I don't usually do anything like that, but I would encourage you. Go back and listen to that message again. Listen to it again about where God is and how God works in the wilderness because it helps us when we go through those times. So Jesus told us, love God and love people. And how can we do that individually and as a church? How do we help people take that next step in this relational context so that they begin to serve and love? How do we get people alongside us who will cheer for us, people who will hold us accountable, people who will love us? How do we do that? And I've been thinking about in Scripture different times and different ways this happens. Because I find what happens a lot of times, people can start coming to church and they can get real excited and they can see changes in their life and it's really great. And then after a while, you know, you, just, it, it auto, you get used to it. It becomes a little bit old hat. It just becomes the same, same. And things aren't changing so much and you start to struggle with certain things and you get frustrated. How do we move past that? And as a church, we want to help you with that. We want to get involved in your life. We want you to use your abilities and your gifts to serve and grow and reach people. And we see in the passage that was read in a first century community how it happened with the early church. And what I'm talking about this morning, even though the introduction didn't seem like, I'm talking about who owns your stuff. Because there's a very powerful connection here between our stuff, our money, our motorcycles, our whatever it may be, and our relationship with God. There's a powerful connection that we have to think about. So in Acts chapter two, we see something in verse 42. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, so what happened? They decided they were gonna devote themselves to teaching. They were gonna devote themselves to fellowship with each other. They were gonna devote themselves to the breaking of bread. Now that probably means just meals. It can mean the Lord's Supper, but it can also just mean a meal. Because in the early church, they took the Lord's Supper in the middle of a meal. So it was all intricately connected with them. And then to prayer, those four things. And it says they devoted themselves. And what that, that word devoted is a very, very uh, pointed word. It means to make a point of something, to be very careful about doing it. In other words, it's important to you. And so they devoted themselves to it. They did it regularly. It was a, a regular thing. And then what happened? A radical transformation took place in their lives. Very radical when you consider the culture and the, 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 the way things were in the days that they were living. And it says, this is, this is what we just read, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales and put them at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. So he's a little bit of a foreigner. 
sold a field that belonged to him and brought it to them, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we see something. Something has happened now to these people. As they devoted themselves to the word of God and to prayer, to, to fellowship and being together with others, of honoring and worshiping the Lord and serving each other, what happened? It started to radically affect them in the place that we know is the hardest to affect. The, the wallet, the pocketbook. That's the hardest and they started, something happened to them. They were of one mind, it says. What does that mean? It means they, they started realizing, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about God. Their focus changed. Their focus changed and it affected them radically. Now, here we are. We're talking about money. No one likes to talk about, I don't like to talk about money. I don't like to talk about giving. If you've come here any length of time, you know I don't like talking about those things and we don't talk about them very much. We don't take an offering so a plate gets shoved in your face. We don't do that. There's a basket in the back. You give as God leads you. We want to encourage you in that. But here's the thing. <clears throat> we have to because Jesus talks about it a ton and it's right here in this passage. And what is it showing us? It's showing us that as people, people went deeper with God, it affected them in a financial way. And if you go deeper with God, it will affect you in a financial way. You know, what's the favorite word of a two-year-old? Mine. At least it was, I have five kids. It's still their favorite word. I just want you to know that. Not yours. They don't say, oh, yours. They don't say ours. You know, some other little kid comes up and I'm playing with the toy and I go, ours. No, you don't see that happen a whole lot. If you do, there's something wrong. I guarantee it. But, but you know what? As we get older, we don't say it out loud so much, but we still think it. Envy, anxiety, greed, these things can dominate our lives, you know, and, 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 and uh, great thinkers have thought about this over in the past and tried to figure out why are we this way. And, and, and the, uh, the great thinker Jean-Jacques Rousseau, I love his name. I just, I like, it's French and it sounds cool. So he must be brilliant. And he thought that in a, and he, I, maybe I'm wrong about that. In a, he thought in a primitive state, the, uh, the noble savages uh, were content. They were content in this primitive state where they just all kind of uh, agriculture was happening or hunting was happening until the first savage said, stakes, uh, little fence, this is mine. And he said, that's when it all went south. That's when everything went wrong. That was the beginning of civil society with crimes and wars and murders and horror. And therefore he and others have thought this, that if we just eliminate private property, we could usher in utopia. Yeah, as you know, that's been tried not that long ago and has not been terribly successful. And you know what, it's not just lately. They tried it in the first century too. There was a community uh, out in the desert outside of Jerusalem at the time Jesus was alive called the Qumran community. And, and what they did was anybody who came in had to bring everything they had and just give it. And then everybody lived off of what everybody had brought in. And, you know, then they divvy up things like jobs and all that kind of thing. Didn't work so great then either, but it did do one thing for us. They wrote down a whole bunch of scripture in the, uh, on scrolls that we have since found in caves and have been a, a revolution in terms of the, uh, the uh, historicity and accuracy of the word of God. But... It was a forced sharing. 
But that's not what's going on here. I want you to understand that because some people think that. That's not what's going on here. Everyone still owned their stuff. It says from time to time, not necessarily regular. Somebody would give to the church or sell something and give it to the church and help others voluntarily. And it said, as was needed. In other words, they saw the need and they were moved to meet the need. So they did. This is what's going on. It's amazing. It's totally voluntary. It's totally based on God impacting a person's life to prompt them to do it. And we see that one of them was this man named Barnabas who sold a field. And the way it's worded, it's, it seems to be implying that he sold one of his fields. He had other fields. So he didn't sell everything he had, but he saw a need and he said, this field will take care of that need. And what was their approach? Their approach was, it's not my stuff. It's not our stuff. It's not the leader's stuff. It's God's stuff. Who owns your stuff? And so we come to grips with this if you're in college, it's under Stuff 101. It's all about God's stuff. And the fundamental principle is this. It's his. And coming to grips with that changes everything. It is a radical change that can happen in your life. It changes attitude. It changes behavior. It changes everything. I read this story a long time ago in my favorite theological journal, um, Reader's Digest. And uh, this... uh, this story is, is, is a true story. A traveler between flights at an airport went to a lounge and bought a small package of cookies, and then she sat down and began reading a newspaper. Gradually, she became aware of a rustling noise on the table next to her, you know, a little table that separates chairs in the, in, the, in the airport. Not wanting to make, she looked over, and she was flabbergasted to see a neatly dressed man helping himself to her cookies. Not wanting to make a scene, she leaned over and took a cookie herself, kind of like, I think these are mine. A minute or two passed, and then there was some more rustling. He was helping himself to another cookie. And by this time, they had come to the end of the package, but she was so angry, she did not dare allow herself to say anything. Then, as if to add insult to injury, the man broke the final cookie in two and pushed half across to her and ate the other half and then left. Still fuming and just angry, her flight was announced, and she opened her handbag to get her ticket, And to her embarrassment, she came across a bag of cookies. She came to grips. Whose cookies were those? It changes everything. She thought she was nice, being nice by just letting him eat those cookies, but it turns out who was being nice? Whose cookies were there? Were they? God shares things with us, and we treat them like they're our cookies. We treat them like they're ours. And we have to realize the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. The earth and everything. There's not much left out. They're all God's cookies. My house is God's house. My cars are God's cars. My motorcycle is God's motorcycle. Yet my clothes are God's clothes. My savings are God's savings. My body is God's body. It's all God's stuff because there's an important principle that is incredibly simple for us to learn. It all belongs to God. It all belongs to God. And we live with this delusion. I think that it's mine. I think that I've earned it. I think that I've merited it. I'm entitled to it. It becomes a source of pride for us. 
And then what happens? I find security in it. Sometimes I get anxious about it. I want more. But it's all God's stuff. He made it. He created it. He thought it up. It's the fundamental principle of the human condition. It's God's stuff. And that's the truth. And that is the truth that community got. That community of believers at the beginning in Jerusalem and the book of Acts, they suddenly realized this is all God's. It doesn't matter. He will take care of me. I will give. Doesn't mean they act, acted foolishly. We understand Barnabas had other fields. But they decided this is God's stuff. How does he want me to use it? One other principle that's really important for us to remember. I can't keep it. I can't keep it. You know, Solomon he looked back on all his wealth. He said, naked, a man, naked, a person comes from his mother's womb. And as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. It all, we can't take any of it with us. Now we think we get, you know, you think about things like giving it to your children and stuff like that. But you know, part of the problem is sometimes, I don't know if you thought about this, but I thought about this is they didn't earn it. And I'm not 100% sure that if I have stuff to give to them, they're going to take care of it or use it wisely. And that was Solomon's problem later in, that, later in that book. He realized that he had a lot to give to his kids, and they were all dopes. He just looked at them and said, they are not going to do the right thing with this. Why should I give it to them? But you can't take it with you. I just... I. I've read about this story. There's a book. It's called uh, Death Warmed Over. It's a lady named Lisa Rogak wrote it. And um, she's a, s- a sociologist. And, and it's interesting. I've, I've read parts of it. I haven't read the whole thing. And I've read this part and other parts too. It's an interesting book because it's kind of a <clears throat> sociological study of funerals and, and, and food. And so there are, it, it's weird. There's recipes in it, but also there's stories. And even, and she starts with a story of a, of a, a, a dying man at home in bed, and he could smell the aroma of chocolate chip cookies, his favorite kind, baking downstairs. He wanted one more cookie, one more cookie before he died. So he dragged his body out of, de- out of bed and crawled down to the kitchen, <clears throat> reached a trembling hand to grasp one final cookie when he felt the sting of a spatula smack his hand. Put that back, his wife said. They're for the funeral. I'm on cookies today too, right? You get that too? <laughs> but that's the human condition right there, I'm telling you. Solomon had lots and lots of cookies and he kept thinking, if I could just get one more, one more cookie before I die, then I'll be happy. And one night in Solomon's life and in all of our lives, it's gonna come a spatula. It's gonna whack us and says, it doesn't belong to you. It's for the funeral. For you English majors, to paraphrase the poet John Donne, ask not, for whom the spatula wax, it wax for thee. It's the first thing I thought of when I read that story. You know, it's basic. It really is basic. And yet here we are. We're smart people and we forget this. It's all God's stuff. It's all God's stuff and I can't take it with me. The spatula is going to come for me one day and it's going to whack me. And, and I can't keep it. But I can use it right now if I want to. 
The stuff is not for you to keep. Your soul, your character, your heart, my soul, my character, my heart, those are the things that are gonna last forever. Those are the things that are important. And we get that all mixed up. They're the things that are real. I can use my stuff to get rid of anxiety and greed. I can use my stuff to become generous like God is generous. I can use it to bless people, other people. I can use it to feed people. I can use it to help people. I can use it to help people come to know Jesus. I can use my stuff. And when I do that, what I'm doing is I'm allowing Jesus to be formed in my heart, in my soul. I become more and more like him when I become generous because that's what he was. And this happened in this community of people. All of a sudden, their stuff was just a tool to use for others. And no one had ever seen this kind of commitment before. And it spread. And it went to a city named Antioch. And they lived that way. It says in Antioch, they lived that way. And I just want to give you a little historical background. Antioch is the first major city in the Roman Empire that the gospel reached and it started to transform. We, we, we have little hints in different parts of scripture of how it transformed racial boundaries. It transforms class and status boundaries. It transformed um, uh, and transcended religious boundaries. People from all kinds of religions were coming to Jesus. All kinds of classes from slaves to, to, to slave owners to publicans in upper, the upper reach were coming to Jesus and all kinds of people from all over the place because Antioch was a humongous city that was a kind of a crossroads of a huge part of the world. And I want you to understand how humongous Antioch was. Uh, cities are measured uh, by the metric of uh, residents per acre or residents per square mile. That's how they measure the density of a city, all right? So San Francisco is about 27 residents per acre. Our, our densest city is New York City. It's about 40, uh, 45 residents per acre. Now, you may think that doesn't sound like so much, but you know, that includes Central Park. That includes all those kind of places. 45 people, have you ever walked through New York City? Have you ever been downtown in New York City? Gone down and seen where, where the ball drops, all that? It's just like these masses of people. And sometimes you feel like you just get caught in the flow and you couldn't leave it if you wanted to. It's 43 45 residents per acre. Rodney Stark is a historian, and uh, what they came across was there was a census, a Roman census done, and they, they did a census of Antioch, and they have almost the, the complete sentence, census was found. Antioch had 197 residents per acre. New York is 43. Antioch was five times bigger. Five times bigger. Now, what does that mean? Because, you know, we see these movies, we see these movies about Rome and we think these people all live in these giant marble houses. What we don't see is that um, they estimate that for each private home in Rome, there were 26 blocks of tenement dwellings, which generally were one room for a whole family, which oftentimes, if any of you have ever been a submariner, you know what happens with bunks and submarines. That's your bunk for 12 hours, then it's someone else's bunk for the other 12 hours. They did that with homes. They did that with tenement dwellings. That was your dwelling for 12 hours, and then you got out and somebody else gets it so that they could eat and sleep. And so this idea of privacy was unheard of in ancient cities. The streets were extremely narrow. They were a combination of mud, open sewers, rubbish, manure, and sometimes human flesh. Human corpses just turned out in the streets. So the stench was unbearable. 
That was one of the hallmarks of large cities in the ancient world. They smelled horrible, especially in certain areas. That's why incense was so popular. Filth and disease was everywhere. They estimate half of the children born died in infancy or early childhood. So it was a 50% death rate for children. So here comes this group of believers in Antioch. And they share their stuff with each other. And they meet others' needs. And they care for the sick and the dying. And when a plague comes, they don't run away from the city like everyone else does. They stay in the city and they nurse people back to life if they can. And they bury the dead to give them a decent burial. No one's ever seen anything like this before in the world. And when you have these people in one city taking collections for each other, taking collections for different races, different ethnic backgrounds, different classes in their society, Gentiles for Jews and Jews for Gentiles. This was unheard of. This is not some clever economic system. This is Jesus. This is what really happened. And it was Jesus that did it. It was a community of people who were gripped by the presence and by the way of Jesus. And they took him seriously. And they decided this stuff is his How can I use it? That's why Christianity exploded across the world. Because this is something that people hadn't seen. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says, each man, each woman should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make it all, God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. He's saying, look, God says he's going to bless you. He's going to bless you in a way that you can bless other people. He's going to bless you so that you don't have to sit here and think, if I give this away, I go without a meal. He's going to bless you like that. Why? So that you can serve others. So that you can reach others. God supplies us with the idea that we will abound in giving. And people and churches around there became free, free from the unsatisfied desire that drives us to always want more. I love uh, Philip Yancey. He's an author. He's written some, I think, some very relevant books. And he writes about a man who's in search of simplicity, you know, a minimalist. That's big these days. This was quite a few years ago. He went on a retreat to a monastery, and the life there was very Spartan, very simple, very few creature comforts. And that was the life these monks had chosen to live. And their whole point was, we want to be liberated from the desire for more. And so they show him where he goes, and they said, get settled. It's a little Spartan room, you know, and there's just a thin mattress, and that's it, a little little tiny dresser, very simple. And, uh, And then a monk knocks on the door. He says, listen, I just want you to know If you need anything, just let us know and we'll show you how to get along without it. He said, you can do this. But we don't see that today, do we? Right? We don't see ads on TV. Don't buy junk. Save your money and give it to people. You don't see that too much. There's no no ads that will show you how not to get rich. That's not a big seller. There's not many ads that will say, look at this beautiful car. Now we're going to show you how to live without it. They're not going to do that. And, it, it, and it's, a, it's a hard thing. I don't want to minimalize it. But we know this is what Jesus said. 
Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You know, some of you have translations where it says, instead of money, it says mammon, which is really a much better translation. That's what the word is. The word mammon is, ties in, it does mean finances, but it ties in with a Syrian God who was all about money and getting rich. And what is Jesus doing when he ties that in like that? He's, he's personalizing, he's personifying money. He's saying there's something dangerous here. Money in and of itself is not inherently evil, and having money is not inherently evil, but it can do evil things. And he says, I want you to understand it can affect you. In fact, even in that passage, I thought it was always interesting because Jesus is talking about money, talking about how God will supply your needs, and then he needs, and then he gives this illustration of the eye. You know, if if the eye is 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 wrong, the body is dark. If the eye is can see clearly, the body is light. And I thought, what does that have to do with money? Because it's right in the middle of it. And what is he saying? He's saying there's an ethical issue here with finances. Mammon can blind you. And you see yourself and you see the world in ways that are not true, that are not accurate. There's a power in money. And and if we're honest with ourselves, we understand that because we always feel like we need more. We always feel like we need more. We always feel like, and this is the one I think I've fooled myself with at times, if I had more, oh, I would give a lot more. I would give way more because I have so much more, right? You ever prayed that just before you bought your lottery ticket? God, if I win a million dollars, I'm telling you, I'm gonna give half, half to you. And then what does studies show? That never happens. When you get more, you go, oh, well, maybe if I just, okay, when I get, okay, Nat, when I get this, then, oh, I'm gonna be so generous. The great study of that is, is uh, Andrew Carnegie. At the age of 35, he said, money is corrupting me. I've got to get rid of it. I've got to live a simple life on a simple salary. And he wrote it in his diary. In five years, I'm giving it all up. I'm getting rid of all of it. And he didn't. And he didn't. He became known in his dying days of funding some incredible things, but I think what that was, was him looking back and going, I didn't do it. I said, I do. I, I, gotta, I gotta do something right now. I feel bad for him because he knew what the answer was. Now, I'm not saying that's the answer for you. I'm not saying that's the answer for me. But here's the thing. We do know this. There's a power in money. We always feel like we could use more. We always feel like if we had more, we would be so much more generous. It's one of those tests, you know. Remember the Israelites in, 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 in the desert and God tested them at various times? It's very interesting because God t- tells them in Deuteronomy, he says, there's one more test that's coming and you're gonna fail it. And you're gonna fail it over and over and over and over. You're gonna fail it every time. And the Israelites, oh no, God, you are our God. We will serve you, you know. And he says, okay, here's the test. You're gonna get to the promised land. You're gonna get to that land. And it's going to be overflowing, just like I promised you. It's going to be incredible. And you're going to, you're going to flourish. 
and you're going to make money and your, your olive trees are going to produce olives and your, and your, you know, your, uh, your grapes are going to just flourish and you're going to have all this wine and, and you're just going to get so comfortable. And he basically says, this is the, the, the RMS, the most reverse Mosley style. He basically says, you're going to do this. You're going to go, look what my hands have done. Look what I have accomplished. And God goes, I gave you that land. I gave it to you. And within a few years, you're going to go, man, I'm awesome. Look what I've done. Look at my stuff. That's the test, he said. You're going to fail it every time. And so do we. So do we. You know, have you ever noticed how you feel when you sense the need to help others in a very significant way? Maybe you hear about something that's huge about somebody you know, and you think, you know, I, I really, I should, I should help. I should help. I could give. I could give a lot here. I could, right? And it kind of grips you and you think about it and you yes, I could, I could do that. And then if you think it for a little bit, okay, I'm really admitting a lot about myself right now. So I hope you guys aren't all going, Bob, you are a freak. You're a weirdo. We don't do that. Okay, yes, you do, you liars. So you, you, you sit there and, you, and it kind of attracts you and you think, oh, I could, you know, and then kind of maybe you go home and you start thinking, wow, okay, maybe not that much. Maybe just... Maybe, yeah, not, not 5,000, maybe 2,500, maybe 1,000. 1,000 would help. Then other people would have the chance to help too. So I'm actually thinking of others as I do this, spreading the love, right? And then before you know it, you're down to 50 bucks. You're going, I know I can stroke a check for 50 right now, you know? Before you know it, you've talked yourself down. Why? Because it's scary, Let's be honest, it's scary. You hear about needs, you hear about something. And listen, we can never meet all the needs, right? That's impossible. But that's not what God calls us to do. What did it say in that Acts 2? It says, as they saw a need, a particular need, grip their heart. And they said, I can help. And they did. But what happens? It gets scary. Why? Because it's what you trust. Being generous gets to the heart of what we're trusting. The way of generosity breaks down the power of money in our life. It turns our eyes off the created things and back to the creator. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3, right? What was the temptation? The serpent said, look at the fruit. You can't trust God. You're going to have to take charge of your happiness and fulfillment. And what happens in our lives, our stuff, our finances, they become that fruit. This is what I trust. This is what I trust. And generosity, if you learn to be generous, it will form your heart. It will shape your identity. You'll start to realize this money, this house, this job, this stuff, this is not who I am. This is not my security. And when you give your money, when you serve others, you give literally of yourself because it's a part of you that's flowing out in that. And that's what Jesus did. I mean, ultimately, right? Scripture tells us he who is rich became poor for our sakes. He died so that we could live. He gave himself for us. He became weak so we could be strong. 
He came for us because we needed a savior. That was our greatest need. And it still is. Even as we walk with him. And he gives it to us for free. Because he paid the cost. There is a cost. But he paid he paid it. When we realize that, when we realize what's involved here, we start to look at our stuff differently. And I'm going to challenge you just a little because I don't, I don't, I don't like getting heavy handed, but let's, let's talk about this. I just, just a, this is my own little thing of levels, a kind of, of giving. I think the first level is kind of like the starter or the, the, the starter level. It's kind of like, you know, a tip. It's like you go to a place, you go, well, you know, the music is pretty good. That guy, uh, he was a little boring, but, you know, that's okay. Um, not too fond of bald people, but that's all right. And I'll just leave a little tip, you know. I'll put five bucks in the, the little basket in the back, or I'll put 20 bucks in the little basket in the back. And that's kind of the starter level, and if that's where you're at, that's great. It's a good start, right? The next level is, the, like, I call it a cause or a crisis. Something gets your attention, this seems horrific, you know, uh, uh, some of the stuff that's been happening in our country or earthquakes in, in uh, Turkey and Syria or the war in uh, Ukraine or in other places or something like that. You go, you know, I, I should give to that. That's a good thing. I, I should respond to that. And that's the beginning of, of allowing yourself to, to be affected by things and to decide to give. The third level is what I call systematic or systematic, maybe systematic obedience. I don't know. Just people often relate this to the tithe from the Old Testament. But you know, we just read that verse where Paul said, let each person give as they have decided. Between you and God, how much you give is between you and God. I'm never going to tell you an amount because that's none of my business. That's your relationship with God. But scripture does talk about giving as something that happens systematically. And, and, and we don't want to make it legalistic. You know, oh, I forgot to give this week. I'm going to be, God's going to hit me. I'm going to get, catch a cold. If I forget for three weeks, I'll get COVID. You know, we, we, we think like God is punishing us. No, that's not, that's not it. It's always funny because whenever I talk a little bit about giving regularly, people, the first thing I get from people is, do I tithe on the gross or the net? which I think is kind of you're missing the spirit of the thing with that. But um, anyways, here's the fourth level. Spirit-directed generosity. This is, this is when God strikes you with something. It grips you and you go, I can do something here. I can do something. It may hurt a little, but I can do it. And I'm not going to talk myself down. I'm going to do what I believe God is asking me to do. Now, I want to just say something as I go through this. This church is amazing. This church is amazing. We've had times where things have come up and the people in this church have responded in ways that are incredible. We talked this Christmas, and, and, and I only mentioned it like twice, I think, from the pulpit. We only mentioned like twice that, that we were trying to replenish our benevolent fund. This is a fund that we have to help people in our in our a congregation that are struggling and people in the community that are struggling, you know, financially or whatever. And that, that this past year, we'd had tons of needs and, and we had just drained it dry and we'd even had to throw in some stopgap money to help people. And, and I just mentioned, you know, for almost like a little Christmas offering, we want to replenish that fund. And whammo, that fund is replenished for years. People gave we now can look, to, look at needs and say we can help in a significant way. We can do something here. That's, and that is, 
what you did is that very first, first century thing. You saw the need and you said, I will give. And some of you, you know, maybe you say, I can't right now. That's fine. That's fine. But when God grips your heart, if you have the ability and you know you can do it, he said, that's, that's spirit-directed, spirit-directed giving. And that's when I start to go, it's not my stuff. It's not what I find my security in. It's not what I find my confidence in. It's not where I find my freedom. That is all in Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not wrong. It's not wrong to enjoy stuff, all right? I have a motorcycle. I have a motorcycle that I do not need. Right? I know I don't need it. Okay, I think I need it, but deep down inside, I know I don't. Right? It's not wrong to have stuff and enjoy stuff. But here's the thing. When God grips you about something, don't minimize it. Don't whittle it down. Think about, can I do something here? Can I do something here? And just if God grips you, don't take on every cause because there's too many causes, right? There will always be needs. But when God points one out to you, I encourage you to take that seriously and think about, you know, where, where are you giving? What are you doing? You know, when you're a pastor, you see a lot of people die. You deal with death. It's part of it. And I can tell you, I've never had somebody say to me, I wish I'd spent more money on me. I've never had anyone say, I wish I had a bigger house as they were dying. I've never had somebody say, you know, I wish, I wish I had a nicer car. That is never a regret at the end of life. What is the regrets at the end of life? The ones I hear the most. Regrets about how I live for God. I wish I'd have done more. Regrets about relationships. I wish I'd have been a better father, husband, brother, sister, whatever. Those, those are the things. Because why? Why is that? It's because this other stuff doesn't last. But your soul, you, you last. And other people last. That's all. Scripture tells us it's only people and the word of God. Those are the only two things that are going to last. And so those are the only two things that are worth investing in. And my goal is not that you or I would leave this place and go, I've got to give to something. Bob has made me feel so guilty. That's not my goal. My goal is that you would leave this place going, God, if you show me something, I'm in. I'm in. What will it be? You show me. And then what? God, you show me something. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to talk to you about it. And then God, I'm going to step out in faith and try to obey as best I can. That is what God's looking for. That's all he's looking for, the willing heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for your love for us and the way that you have given us so much. None of us chose to be born in the richest country in the world. You've, that was your first gift. 
And so, Lord, help us to understand that we have a responsibility before you as the rich of this world and how we look and treat other people and what we do with what you've blessed us with. Help us, Lord, to be found faithful in this. And God, if we need to change, and if I need to change, give us the courage to do it because this is scary. It's scary to trust you. And yet, Lord, we know that's where freedom is. And we don't want to be enslaved. Thank you for your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.